You know, it's uh, so important to know the truth of what God has done for us as we celebrate. Today is Easter Sunday. Today is Resurrection Day. We are reminded that Jesus came. He came to die, and he was raised again, and because of that, we have eternal life. Earlier on, I mentioned that this coming Saturday as part of the the kids program here, uh, they've got a, a special showing of the film Apostle Peter and the Last Supper. I've got some flyers available. They found some, and we can use those uh, to invite people down to that event this coming Saturday here at KT. Well, this afternoon, we are continuing the series we started last week. Um, it's a new series, and we've been, uh, even as we're preparing to come into Easter and on beyond this time, we're looking at uh, God has given us a command to go and make disciples. Uh, last week, Gabriel was speaking on the power of the gospel. And today, my topic is you must repent and believe. You must repent and believe. I've uh, been blessed to have the visual aid that the, the kids performed in the sketch, uh, reminding us the need that we must repent and believe. As I mentioned, this is probably uh, the most important day in the church's calendar, um, Easter Sunday, um, because resurrection power was released when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14. He says this, And if Christ is not reason, then our preaching is empty. Our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. And so Jesus' resurrection becomes the platform for you and I to be able to, to embrace the truth of what God has done for us, that we can repent and believe. Resurrection power enables us to repent and to believe. I want to start uh, this afternoon by uh, just looking at a portion of scripture to start off this afternoon from uh, the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Um, and this really speaks about how Jesus launches into his ministry. And we pick it up from Mark chapter 1 and verse 10. Mark 1 and verse 10. It says, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now Jesus Christ had just come out of a period of 
uh, being in the wilderness is, is an amazing, and I'm always fascinated by this, this portion of scripture. It's an amazing story because uh, Jesus himself had just been baptized in water. He'd been baptized in water, and we know that during that baptism, God affirmed him. Um, and when God affirmed him, the Bible says there that, you know, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came and affirmed him from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he goes from that uh, uh, amazing experience, and the Bible says he's driven into the wilderness where he gets tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was hungry afterwards. And the enemy comes, uh, Satan comes and tempts him. And he comes out of this, and his first word in his ministry, his public ministry, is written here in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. I'm, you mind me, speaking of baptism, by the way, every uh, last Sunday of the month, we have a baptism here in Kensington Temple. And if you haven't been baptized in water, you have an opportunity to join us. Um, the 2.30 service, the last Sunday of the month, to join us and be baptized in water. And uh, awesome things happen as people go through the waters of baptism, that public declaration of their faith that they have repented and they have believed. It reminds me of a, a story I, I once heard. There was this preacher who was uh, baptizing in a, in a river, just by a river, and just as he was doing uh, the baptism, a drunk who was passing by staggers into the water. And the preacher thought, well, this is my opportunity to convert him. And so he drags the drunk, dunks him into the water, and pulls him back up and says, my man, have you found Jesus? And the drunk was like, huh? No, I haven't found him. And so the preacher dunks him again in the water, brings him out and says to him a second time, have you found Jesus? And the drunk looks and says, I don't understand. What do you mean? I know I haven't found him. And the preacher takes him again, dunks him a third time and keeps him there for a while and then brings him back up. And the drunk comes out, he's plotting and coughing and, and the preacher goes to him, for the love of God, have you found Jesus? And the drunk looks at him and said, are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> Finding Jesus is about coming to a place where you and I embrace the truth of the gospel, the truth that challenges us to repent and to believe. There's a parable told of two sons in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 28. Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples says this, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and walk today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The disciples answered, the first. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. In other words, if you repent and believe, you will be saved. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. The story describes these two sons. 
The father asks both of them one at a time. The first son, he asks him to go. The son says, I'm not going to go. But in the end, the son changed his mind, and the son actually went to the field. He asked the second son, and the son said, yes, I will go, but the son never did. And we know that that portrays the picture of those who embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus, those who repent and believe, those who become saved. But what does repentance and belief mean? What does repentance and belief mean? And that's where we're going to start this afternoon. We want to look at what these two words mean. Start off with the word repent. The word repent is a word that's derived from the Greek metanoia. And that means to change one's mind, to think differently or afterwards. It's formed of two words, meta and neo. Uh, meta means after or after or behind. And uh, neo means to perceive with the mind. So it's like having an afterthought or thinking again or making a consideration. And the root of that word comes from the word that's translated in the Greek to define mind. We think with our mind. We think with our mind. And that's our faculties for perceiving and understanding and judging and determining. And so there's this sense where repentance speaks of a change of mind, of a change of thinking, of an alteration of what we have perceived before. And so we are thinking again. We are thinking again. And the interesting thing is that because we uh, uh, have to deal with the whole concept of the mind, uh, the, the, the prophet Ezekiel speaks again and again in the book of Ezekiel about the need to know God and who he is. Again and again the prophet Ezekiel says uh, that you may know that the Lord is God. That you may know that the Lord is God. That you may know that the Lord is God. In other words, Echoing the words of the psalmist, be still and know that I am God. Because as soon as you and I have that true perception of who he is, we are able to respond accordingly. There's a quote that says, knowledge is power. Maybe you've already heard that quote. Maybe you have even spoken of that quote. And when you and I come to true revelation, the knowledge of God, when we are able to alter our thinking, not in our own strength, and when we look at belief, we'll see how these two words are connected. When we are able to do that, we are able to come to a place of being saved, of being transformed. First Corinthians chapter 1 speaks of the wisdom of God, that the world through wisdom did not know God, but it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but it is written, I have not seen, nor heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who loved him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God which is in him. So repent means to change our thinking, to alter our mindsets, to, to, to align, realign our perception. What about belief? What does belief mean? 
um, uh, John Whitfield, who was uh, one of uh, 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 the reformers in, in this country, um, uh, was uh, preaching one day to coal miners in northern England. And he comes across one of the, the coal miners and he asks him and he says to him, what do you believe? And the coal miner said, well, I believe the same as the church. And Whitfield said, well, what does the church believe? And the miner said, well, I believe they believe the same as me. <laughs> and he said, okay, so what do you and the church believe? And he replied, well, I suppose we believe the same thing. You see, belief is not just having a thought or perception or an understanding. Belief has to be about truth. And when we look at the word that's translated belief in the New Testament, it's the Greek word pistio, which means to think to be true, to be persuaded, to have confidence in its authenticity, to have confidence in its authenticity. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, one of, uh, I, I know we, we all have scriptures that speak to us, that challenge us, that speak to us, but this is one scripture that just absolutely blows me away. It says in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, and by the way, Hebrews 11 kicks off by talking about what faith is. And faith really is about belief. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, I can't put my finger on it, but I know that it is true. And in verse 6, it says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if we were to stop that verse there, we would be uh, really challenged. Because it will be about, you know, I'm striving, I'm striving, I'm striving. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I want to please God. And so I need faith. And, you know, if I don't have faith, I'm not going to please God. And there's this sense of conflict and challenge. But very quickly, the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is. Full stop. Well, I'm putting a full stop there. The one who comes to God must first believe that he is. In other words, have the confidence assurance that God is who he says he is. You and I need to have that sense that God is big, he's able, he's more than sufficient. He can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can think or ask or even imagine. God is bigger. No, bigger than what you're thinking right now. No, even bigger than that which you just thought. No, I mean even bigger than that which you're thinking you're going to think in the next few minutes. God is a big God. The Bible says that he holds the waters of the world in the hollow of his hands. Now, I don't know if there are any geography students in this place this afternoon. But to have all the waters of the world in the hollow of your hand, you need to have a very big hand. You need to have a massive hand. You need to have a ginormous hand. If my son was here, I'll get him to make up a word for what it means. You need to have a ginomatic something, something hand. A hand that is so enormous. The Bible says, by the span of his arms, 
He's measured out the heavens. Astronomers tell us that the galaxy is expanding. I mean, we are just one solar system in a galaxy of billions of galaxies. And the Bible says God is so big that when he stretches out his hands, he can touch one hand of the heavens to the other. He's a big God. And Hebrews says when you come to him, you have to have that belief, that assurance, that confidence that he is big. In other words, he's big enough. He's big enough and he can and he will. That's the God that we serve. Because it goes on to say, I know I put a, a pause when I said, he who comes to him must first believe that he is. And the word is, there's the word that describes his eternal nature, his all-sufficient nature. He is Alpha, he is Omega, he is El Shaddai, he is Adonai, he is the great God. But, he says, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so we can believe because our God is big and he's a God of authority and he's a God who is sovereign. C.S. Lewis says this, Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told by someone you think is trustworthy. 99% of the things that we believe are believed on authority. In other words, there is a trustworthy source that we are putting our confidence in. A trustworthy source. Now, I believe that there is such a place as Australia. Any Australians here? We had the visit this morning of uh, the general superintendent of the Elim churches in New Zealand. I believe there's a place such as Australia. But I've never been there. Do you believe that there's a place called Australia? Yes. Why do you believe it? You have placed your trust on a source of authority, but you've never been there. We can't prove by some abstract reasoning that Australia exists, but we believe it because someone reliable told us so. It might have been in your geography class when you were in primary school. It might be because you saw uh, some pictures that someone showed you. But there was a source of authority that you put your confidence in concerning that. Every one of us, we put our confidence in trustworthy sources. The ordinary person believes in the solar system, believes in atoms, believes in the circulation of blood, all on authority because someone has said so. Even historical statements are believed on authority. We believe there was such thing as the Roman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada. Now these are historical things we believe on the basis that someone of authority wrote them down. We weren't there for the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada. 
but we believe it. How many of you believe in the Norman Conquest? That there was a Norman Conquest. These things we put our trust in. We believe them simply because the people who wrote them are people of authority. And so, when we speak about the word of God, we can put our faith, our belief, our trust, and our confidence in it because not to do so will be to leave the 99% of our lives not believing things on authority. You and I would not believe anything if it wasn't based on some form of authority because 99% of what we believe is based on authority. And the word of God is an authority that we can believe in. Matthew 3 and verse 2 reminds us, I'll read it from the Amplified. It says, and saying, repent, think differently, change your mind, regretting your sins and changing your kingdom for the kingdom, your, your conduct for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so how do we tie in these two words together? We must repent and we must believe. By repentance, we must forsake our sins. And by faith, we must receive forgiveness of them. Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. By repentance, we must give glory to our Creator, whom we have offended because we are sinners. But by faith, we also give glory to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who died and was raised again, the one who came to save us from our sins. Both of these must go together. We must not think that either reforming our lives will save us without trusting in the righteousness and grace of Christ. We saw that in the sketch that the, the kids did for us this afternoon. I can't just try to be, I can't just try and reform my lives and do this and that and the other. Even if I raise a million pounds for comic relief, that's not going to be sufficient. Even if I'm very helpful to my neighbors and those around me, reforming my life will not save me without trusting in the righteousness and grace of Christ. And by the same token, trusting in Christ will not save us without reforming our hearts and our lives. The two go together. If you are saved, you are saved unto good works. And good works will not save you. But when you are saved, the byproduct is the good works that God has prepared for you to do. And so Jesus Christ joins these two together. Repent and belief. Repentance will quicken faith. And faith will make repentance part of the gospel presentation. And so these two must work together. And so the preaching of the gospel began and continues today. And the call is still repent and believe. And live a life of repentance and live a life of faith. When Jesus sent forth messengers to proclaim his gospel... He commanded them to preach repentance, to preach a change of thinking. He also encourages them to bring people to a place of belief. The interesting thing is that believe and repent are never used together as if teaching two different requirements 
for salvation. Both are brought together. When salvation is mentioned, it's mentioned in the context of faith that leads to repentance, belief that leads to repentance. Genuine faith includes repentance, and genuine repentance includes faith. And so when we look further in this word and we compare these passages, one of the things that we see again and again is the call of God upon us to change our thinking. But what are we changing our thinking about? Because it's not just sufficient to change our thinking. There are a lot of people who will say to you, you just need to think differently. Now, we can think differently, or we can try to think differently, but what is the thinking differently going to achieve? If that thinking differently is not focused upon the confidence, assurance, upon the belief, upon the faith that there is a finished work that has been accomplished for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the change in our thinking is not just as uh, uh, the Bible encourages us in Philippians to consider certain things, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are praiseworthy, whatsoever things are, are honorable, think on these things. No, we're not just talking about thinking on certain things. We're talking about the fundamental thought or the fundamental change of thinking which says that without Christ, I cannot fulfill or satisfy God's need for a changed life. We are fallen nature. We are people of fallen nature. Romans reminds us again and again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have each turned to our own way. One of the amazing things about sheep, and it's interesting that the Bible uses this imagery of a sheep to describe what we are like. If I was to bring a sheep and put that sheep on the stage, one of the things which is guaranteed is that that sheep is not going to stay in that same position. That sheep is going to wander off. That's what sheep are like. They wander. They stray. And the Bible says like sheep, we have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. But the wages of sin is death. You see, if someone does any work, that person expects at the end of that work to get paid. I'm sure you will not be happy if at the end of the month, having worked for your employer, he turns around to you and says, thank you very much, God bless you. You want to have some remuneration for the work that you have done. Well, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And you and I need to change our thinking about how we can satisfy the payment of those wages. Because in our own strength, with our own good works, with our own efforts, we cannot. And so we are changing our thinking about where we need to find the payment concerning the debt that we owe. And that payment was satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. On Friday, Colin preached about the seven words of Jesus Christ on the cross. And one of those words that Jesus Christ spoke out as he was about 
to give up his life to satisfy the penalty that our sin deserved. He said, it is finished. Tetelestai, the debt has been paid in full. The debt has been paid in full. Stand still, stand delivered. There is nothing else to add. There is nothing else to take away from it. He has done it for you and he has done it for me. And so what we're changing our thinking about is that Jesus Christ is the source of the fulfillment of the payment of the debt that we owe because of our sin. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ satisfied once and for all that debt. And so when we repent, we're changing our thinking about where the source of that satisfaction comes from. We're no longer looking to self. We're saying, Jesus Christ, what you did on the cross of Calvary is enough. You were raised from the dead. You settled the debt. You made a way from us. And the scriptures challenge us to then, because of that thinking, make a response. You see, when we think differently, we act differently. When you think differently, you act differently. And so repentance is about changing our thinking, putting our faith in God, and because we have done that, the response that comes out of that is the life of faith. It's interesting when Jesus Christ comes out of the wilderness, a story that we started off from Mark chapter 1 this afternoon. When he comes out of the wilderness, and the Bible says he began to preach the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next thing that begins to happen, he begins to call men. He begins to call his disciple. He calls Simon Peter. He calls Andrew and his brother. And we begin to see Jesus gathering this man and saying to them, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. And so I guess for us as we draw this message to a close, is knowing that we're challenged to repent and believe what should be our response. What should be our response? You see, sometimes people refuse to believe that which they don't want to believe in spite of evidence. Josh McDowell wrote a brilliant book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In other words, if you look at all the evidence, there is enough to say that this is worth believing in. Jesus Christ encountered several individuals during the course of his ministry. The woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. This woman has a discourse with Jesus Christ. What was her response? What was her faith response? What was the change in thinking that took place in this woman's life? Well, I believe it is summed up in John 4 and verse 15. The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water again. All of a sudden, her thinking had changed. She was looking to another source. She had recognized that in Christ was found the solution. In Christ was found the satisfaction that 
she needed. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, what was her response? In John 8, 11, we read, she said, no one, Lord. Jesus asked, has anyone condemned you? And she turned to him and said, no one, Lord. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What about the paralytic story in Luke? These guys who had brought their friend to Jesus Christ because they were desperate to see their friend restored, to see their friend healed, to see their friend walk again. And in verse 19, and they had the difficulty in bringing him in, they broke the roof and let him down through the roof. And verse 20 says this, and when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees were so troubled by this. It's like, who is this guy who now is forgiven sin? And Jesus had to respond to them, say, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive, to forgive sins. He says to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he departed to his own house, glorifying God. What about the woman with the alabaster perfume? Just some stories of Jesus' encounter with individuals. The disciples were troubled that this woman had taken such an expensive flask of perfume and basically spoiled it by breaking it and pouring it on Jesus' feet. With her tears, she wiped his feet. And Jesus' response to his disciple was this, Luke 7, 47. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And we see here the response of individuals. You know, sometimes we can be so challenged because... We, we live in a, uh, an environment where, I guess, oftentimes there is a, a set standard of what it means to repent and believe. Someone repents and believes only if they leave their hand in a service and they pray a certain prayer. But we don't see this in any of these pictures here. All we see is someone whose thinking towards God had changed. And that's faith-enabled thinking. That's not something they could manufacture themselves. I like what Artie Kendall says. He says this, When the spirit is absent, our excuses always seem right. But in the presence of the spirit, our excuses fade away. When God's spirit is present, we are able to be empowered to change our thinking. I will finish with this quote from Oswald Chambers. It says, it's not repentance that saves me. Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of the cause. It is my obedience that puts me right with God. Never am I put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died. When I turn to God and by belief accept what God reveals, instantly 
the amazing atonement of Jesus Christ rushes me into a right relationship with God. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. The salvation of God does not stand on human logic. It stands on the sacrificial atoning debt of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And when we put our faith in God, we believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Our thinking is being changed. We are repenting and we are recognizing that in order to live this life of faith, I need to depend on what Jesus Christ has done for me on Calvary. We continue in our walk with him, understanding that that changed thinking and that belief, that faith, that confidence in God is what is going to get us to the place that we need to get to so that we can truly become disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that you are here in our midst. Before I draw the service to a close, I want to give opportunity here to anyone who, maybe you might never have made that profession of faith. You're saying, well, I don't even know what it means to change my thinking. What, what does that mean? How do I start this journey? How do I walk with God? How do I embrace what Jesus Christ has done for me? That debt that you're telling me has been settled. Well, it starts off by a simple act of faith. An act of faith that says, Lord, I believe what you've done for me. I put my trust in what you've done for me. And I embrace you in my life as my Lord and Savior. With every head bow, every eye closed. I'd like us, everyone together to say this prayer. But especially those who maybe have never had the opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ in their lives as their Lord and personal Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I come to you now and I confess that I am a sinner. I thank you that Jesus Christ died to save me for my sin, to give me eternal life and to bring me into a relationship with God. I ask for forgiveness for my sin I receive Jesus Christ into my life and I embrace him as my Lord and Savior. And today, I begin my walk with God. In Jesus' name. Every head by every eye closed. If you pray that prayer for the first time, we'd like to just encourage you, give you some material to begin to help you in this journey. Just raise your hand and someone's just going to quietly come and stand with you. If that's you this afternoon, just raise your hand. In this, but just slightly lift your hand and you can slip it back down once you've done that and someone will come and stand with you. Is there anyone here this afternoon who's saying yes to Jesus? You pray that prayer for the first time and you're saying yes to Jesus Christ. Is there anyone in this place this afternoon? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just thank you right now. Pray, Lord, that the truth of this message today will continue to reverberate in our hearts that you've called us to a life of faith and repentance, a life in which we embrace what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary 
a life where we change our thinking about what we can do because of what Jesus has done. A life in which we know that when we embrace you, nothing is impossible. And you will be with us as you've promised in your word. You will never leave us nor forsake us. May your grace be with us today, even as we go from this place. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, God bless you this afternoon uh, as you go. Don't forget, Bruce is available at the bookshop. He's going to be in the bookshop signing copies of his new book, um, No More Law. You can pick up your copies there. Um, and he's going to be with us in the 5 p.m. service today um, and also in the 7 p.m. Holy Spirit Revival service this evening. So do join us for that. Don't forget, uh, continue throughout the week. Our meetings, Wednesday is our prayer meeting. And on Friday, Tayo will be in the youth meeting with the apostolic prophetic word and Saturday all day we've got the children's gathering as well. If you're new to Kensington Temple, do come and spend some time with our welcome team. They're here to receive you right now. God bless you as you go.